Hello, my friends. Welcome to Pens of Politics with Mr. Watson. I am your host, as always, Christian Watson. It is so wonderful to be with you guys here today. I know this is only the second episode that I have posted in the entire month of March. The second episode. And look, guys, <coughs> I told you what my schedule was, um, but we have been doing a lot of heavy lifting this month. I mean, just in January, we had two very fancy people on. We had Marianne Williamson and we had Scott Bayo. <clears throat> And that has gotten us a lot of traction on our YouTube side. And by the way, this podcast uh, exists in the audio space, but I do have a YouTube channel, which is like the main platform for my brand, the Christian Watson brand. That YouTube channel is called Christian Watson. Uh, it's called Christian Watson. There will be a link in the show notes and in the description of this show on whatever platform you're listening to me to. But that is where I do most of my regular stuff. And so I have, it's been a balance trying to uh, make my YouTube channel cohere with my podcast, but I think we're doing a good job. I think we're doing a good job. You guys have to be patient with me. Again, if you listen to this podcast, I appreciate it immensely. This is meant to be a longer form area in which I discuss my thoughts about things and I interview people. So as long as you understand the purpose of the podcast and the purpose of the channel, then I think we'll be just fine. We'll be just dandy. But uh, it's an interesting balance because in the past month or so, we have launched ChristianWatson.com, and I'm happy to announce that. It is ChristianJWatson.com. Uh, in the past month, we have uh, we have had a lot of collaborations with very diverse personalities that have brought a lot of people into Pennsylvania family. In the past month, we have done so much. We have done so much for this podcast that I am just, I'm astounded. And so you have to, you know, everything has a foundation. And sometimes you have to labor and labor and labor to ensure the foundation of what you want, the foundation of what you're trying to get is stable. Once the foundation is stable, my friends, then you can create everything else. You can create the structures. You can create the building. You can do what you need to do to make sure that you have an overall successful product. So the foundation is pretty much set. We've got a lot of exciting things coming on um, soon. We have an exciting guest coming on on Sunday. Um, I, I'm just, I'm very grateful for all of you who have invested in the Pensive Politics Christian Watson brand. It means a lot to me, and I'm doing my absolute best to make sure that you guys are getting what you're listening to. You're getting your investments worth, because time is an investment. So, thank you again. Um, again, my website is christianjwatson.com. We also have a Patreon now. If you want to support us on Patreon, my Patreon is patreon.com slash officialcwatson. That is patreon.com slash officialcwatson. If you want to support us there, that would be a tremendous help to me, and it would help me continue my ambitions here. So again, just a short corollary about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being supportive. So on today's episode, my friends, we're going to try to discuss... I don't like being what they call an everyday pundit. I think that the news is one thing, but the news is like everything else in life. It comes and goes. It's transitory, as they would say. And I am not in the business of making a transitory product. I'm in the business of making a product that is relevant 50 years down the line. You know, Elton John said in his one of his famous songs called 60 Years On, who will walk me down to church when I'm 60 years of age, when this ragged dog they gave me has been 10 years in the grave? <laughs> and senorita play guitar she plays just for you you know 
and 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 the and the core of that song is who's gonna be around when I have escaped a certain period of my life and I have gone into a different stage because life is about stages and I think politics reflects that politics is ultimately about stages too. Imagine this: Donald Trump, when he came in 2017, 2016. That ushered in a stage of politics that is still going on. I don't want to say it ended in 2020. It's still going on to this day. That's a different stage of politics where different ideologies were fused into the conversation. Ideologies that would have been before Trump um, outcast and castigated. So just like life, politics has stages. And just like politics, life has stages. So I want my content to be relevant for you guys. But still, the news is what is happening, and I'm so I try to take the news headlines and broaden them to a wider scale to make sure that I, what I'm what I'm doing is getting an accurate picture of everything. So we'll talk about a little bit about Andrew Cuomo and how his his entire situation reflects a kind of tyranny. And I made this argument before, but the problem of tyranny is endemic to a lot of political leaders in America. Not because they're political leaders, but because there's something about them that unites them in their desire to be tyrannical, their desire to not correct themselves and, 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 and master their passion, so to speak. And I've been making this point about Cuomo for a very long time, but I, it's especially cognizant with all of the stuff he's been going through with the uh, sexual assault allegations, getting ripped over the coals for um, throwing, um, throwing old people into nursing homes and then killing people in the nursing homes, getting ripped over the coals for hiding the data that went behind his lockdowns that were overturned by a state judge, a state judge who said there was absolutely no basis for these lockdowns in many of these areas. And, and after that, he immediately came to the and said, we have to stop the lockdowns. Whereas before that ruling, Cuomo was off for the lockdowns. Cuomo has exhibited a trait of tyranny in almost every single action this man has taken over the past year or so and we're going to analyze that and dissect that we're also going to talk about this rescue america stuff my friends the rescue america act if you guys are not familiar you should be is basically these the 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 genesis of the stimulus checks that have been coming out and these stimulus checks my friends are being billed as a kind of aid but i think they're a kind of harm a kind of evil almost not the checks in and of themselves, but the context in which the checks have been conceived, the context in which we are now getting this kind of aid. The context is what makes me think this is not simply a, a, a mere form of, of, of survivalism. This is actually a kind of evil. And I'll explain what I mean by a kind of evil. And also, my friends, we have to discuss Asian... Uh, there is this chatter about how Asian Americans currently feel in America. And I, 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 I just, it, it sometimes is unquantifiable to me. Because there was a shooting last night in Atlanta, and I'm about, fifth, about an hour and 20 minutes from Atlanta. I, I visit Atlanta sometimes. And Asian Americans... Um, are apparently feeling a certain way about this, and I have some thoughts to offer myself. So all of that and more on this episode of Pens of Politics with Mr. Watson. Um, before I get started, guys, I want to tell you, I, I recently had a chance to to, uh, interv- to speak on a panel with one of the greatest minds against critical race theory in America currently, Mr. James Lindsay and Christopher Rufo, and I was invited by Dr. Carlin Borshanko. And the panel was directed at influencing the New Hampshire House of Representatives uh, a select group of people in that House of Representatives to actually defund 
um, critical race theory teaching in New Hampshire public schools and universities. That is the push. That is the move amongst many New Hampshire House of Representatives people, members. And so I was invited on a panel to speak and show my experiences with collegiate debate and how collegiate debate exactly feeds into the kind of rabbit mentalities that we see with critical race theory. And and every time, every time I, I make a speech on that topic, because it's been a recurring issue for me, someone mentioned, every time I make a speech on that topic, I just feel like a weight is lifted off my shoulders. I feel as if I'm finally doing what Emerson urged everyone to do in self-reliance, and he urged everyone in self-reliance to, again, pay heed only to the sanctity of your own mind. The, the measure of a man is the sanctity of his own mind, and how well he maintains his countenance, his face, his being, his composure, his structure, in the midst of a, a ravenous crowd that seeks to tear all those things apart, that seeks to split all those things apart, that seeks to rend all those things apart, and convert those things into being being a dynamo for whatever group dynamic they are trying to make him into. So it's I just feel like I am embodying something divine when I do that. And I just wanted to offer this, this measure of encouragement for you guys. Now, I'm, I'm going to do this every show going forward. This measure of encouragement, guys. You have to be willing to be honest and be truthful, even if, even if it costs you in the short term or the long run. Ultimately, the truth pays out. Because the truth is nothing more than the confirmation of the objective facts of reality. I, that is my understanding of the truth. That is a very philosophical understanding of the truth. That's my, that's my understanding. Ayn Rand would agree with me. No. We live in a world that has objective facts. It's constituted of objective facts. And the truth is your, your process. The, 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 out, the final outcome of being closer to those objective facts. Understanding their every being, understanding their their inner diamondism, so to speak, understanding what they are at both a surface level and a fundamental level. And we don't get closer to those objective facts if we enshrine ourselves into object, subjective beggary, if we enshrine ourselves to subject to, to subjective pleadings by trying to get the vain approval of other people, by trying to get the vain approval of whatever context or community that you're in. This is why I'm not a communitarian. I don't believe that the community takes Take, takes hold or takes um, um, precedent over me. I don't believe that at all. I believe that I am ultimately an individual and I have a, I have a mind of my own and the community only exists, if ever, to uh, in, ensure that my voluntary relations with that community, with those people, is ensured. And to, in a certain sense, ensure my rights are protected. So... I just wanted to give you guys that measure of encouragement. And speaking of rights, speaking of rights, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, the disgraced governor of New York. It is a miracle that Andrew Cuomo has not been yet deposed from office or he has not yet removed himself from office. Charles Rangel was saying this morning, he said, back off of Andrew Cuomo until you have the facts. But I think we have the facts. I think, see, Charles Rangel, who in my opinion is one of the most dishonest and bombastic people to ever occupy the hollowed body of the House of Representatives, Charles Rangel is someone who doesn't necessarily care about facts as he does narratives. He was in a debate with Bill Buckley back in the 90s about legalizing drugs in New York City, and it, he kept appealing to emotion. 
He kept using loaded language. He never made a single argument, but quite literally just ripped them apart. And I find that this mentality is all the more prevalent in a tribalistic context. See, see, tribalism, the danger of tribalism, my friends, is not just that it blinds you to the truth. Well, that's a big danger. It's that it would animate your actions towards a certain end that you would not have tried to get to in the first place without the um, consequence of tribalism. You see, it kind of usurps your interest and placed your interests into the context of a wider community or group. And let's understand, a community or group interest is not quantifiable at all. Anyway, so Andrew Cuomo's defenders are saying stuff like that. But I think the facts are quite clear. The facts are quite... Andrew Cuomo was accused of sexual assault by women. And instead of denying it outright, he simply said, I was inappropriate towards some women. Basically admitting... At their accusations at the base level have merit. Fact number one. Fact number two. Andrew Cuomo decided to shield evidence from the public that supposedly justified the wisdom or the supposed wisdom of him shutting down a good majority of New York amid the COVID-19 pandemic. Gavin Newsom has done the same thing. Which is why Gavin Newsom is kind of trying to kind of hide and run and say that, that his recall effort is a Republican hoax. In all reality, it's simply the, the righteous indictment of a tyrant who has gone too far and who has tried to step on people's rights for too long. That's a different podcast, though. That's the last fact number two. Andrew Cuomo deliberately obscured, obfuscated the information, the information that justified his lockdown. And when a judge, this is fact number three, when a judge decided to review the case, a state judge, they struck down several Cuomo designations that had locked down certain areas on a utilitarian basis, of course, which disgusts me, but on a basis nonetheless that says the Cuomo government has not provided enough evidence, enough evidence to justify why these particular places need to be locked down. The Cuomo government has not provided enough evidence. It makes no sense, the judge said. And the judge smacked it down. Fact number three. Actually, no, fact number four, actually. I think. <laughs> See, when, you, when, when he's done so much stuff, it's kind of hard to get... It's kind of hard to get your head around it. So back number four. Cuomo, after that, decided it'd be a wise decision to backtrack on his admonition that lockdowns are necessary. And earlier, away a, a few year, a few dec- a few months, excuse me, away from this context. Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, my lord, he said to a reporter who questioned, when will schools be open in New York City? First he said, well, they're already open, which means he was blatantly unaware of his own policies. 
Then he said, okay, well, no, well, they'll be open soon. <laughs> and when the reporter kept grilling him, he said, you need to be very careful with your tone. He was very aristocratic. Oh, your tone. You need to be very careful with your tone, my friend. Your tone. Ha, <laughs> ha, I am King George, and I, I tell you what I want to tell you, and I don't tell you what I... That's what he was doing. That's what Como was doing. And then when another reporter said, hey, I think this guy has a point, Cuomo said, I don't care what you think. So the facts are quite clear, Charles Rangel, but I also think there's something deeper going on behind the surface. More than just the facts, Andrew Cuomo, as demonstrated by everything I just listed, exhibits a tyrannical mind. So what is a tyrannical mind, my friends? When we think of tyranny, we oftentimes think of Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or North Korea, and those are tyrants. You know, all those people in all those countries, those are examples of material tyranny. You know, and this is a distinction that is not made often enough. But I think there's a material tyranny that is a sort of outward manifestation of certain government leaders. Then there most certainly is a personal tyranny. And the personal tyranny was a subject amongst a lot of ancient Greek philosophers, particularly Xenophon. In the Hiero, which is a dialogue between Simonides, who is a poet, and, uh, and, and Hiero, who is a tyrant, who is a, a ruler of sorts. Xenophon explores this concept. And so Hiero says, Hiero says that well, Xenophon, oh no, Simonides actually comes to Hiero and says, hey, isn't being a tyrant so glamorous and so wonderful? Isn't that so wonderful and glamorous? And Hiero says, no, no, not at all. Not at all. No, no, not at all, Simonides. I have so many enemies. I have so many things to worry about. And one of the, one of the things in this dialogue, it underlies just how worried and how self-obsessed the tyrant is. This is not in a self-interested way. This is more in a, a, a way that props up this sort of abstraction that the tyrant has in themselves, this sort of broader idea. So they're not following their material interest. They're following the image they have in their mind of who, they're, of who they are as a tyrant. Because if they were following the self-interest, I would argue they wouldn't be a tyrant in the first place. You know, so <laughs> I think that dialogue really explains what's going on. I think that really explains what's going on. Because we think about tyranny oftentimes in a sense that it's just, oh, you're iron-fisted, you're heavy-handed, you're a tyrant. Okay, that's right. But what manifests that heavy-handedness? What manifests that iron-fistedness? What manifests authoritarianism? What manifests authoritarianism? That's my question. The question is very obvious, in my opinion. Tyranny does. Tyranny does. Personal tyranny does. You know, every concept has a philosophical base to it. Even if you don't, even if you don't think that someone is thinking philosophically, they don't have to be thinking philosophically for their actions to have a basis in principle. I, I actually had a debate about this recently on, on a Twitch stream. I did that as well on, on, on Bastiat's stream. And the, the guy said, the guy was telling me, oh, Christian, um, you know, these politicians do not act philosophically or principally. No, I said, look, every single politician manifests their actions on the basis of some principle. Doesn't have to be 
a good principle. It doesn't have to be a righteous principle, but it is manifested on the basis of some principle. So there's a part of the, the high road that I want to read to you guys. This is when Simonides is talking to Hiero about the pains of the tyrants. Simonides replied, Oh, Hiero, there is a potent force, it would appear, the name of which is honor, so attractive that human beings strain to grasp it. And in the effort they undergo all pains, endure all perils, it would further seem that even you, you tyrants, in spite of all that sea of trouble, which a tyranny involves, so we see Simonides is saying, yeah, there's trouble in tyranny. But in spite of all that trouble, the tyrants, according to Simonides, rush headlong in, in pursuit of it. Wait, so, so we can assume that Cuomo knew, being the governor of New York, that there would be trouble in admitting that he essentially did something sexually inappropriate with women. We can, we can deduce that Cuomo knew there'd be trouble in admitting, <laughs> you know, in, in smashing down a reporter who's asking a question about the fate of ed the education of so many children in New York. We could admit, we could admit so many things. There'd be trouble in admitting and doing all these things. But despite the obvious unwisdom of his actions, Cuomo went headlong in pursuit of it. Let's keep going on. You must be honored. All the world shall be your ministers. They shall carry out your every injunction with unhesitating zeal. You shall be the sinosure of neighboring eyes. Men shall rise from their seat at your approach. They shall step aside to yield you passage in the streets. All present shall at times magnify you and shall pay homage to you both with words and deeds. Those, I take it, are the ever kind of things which subjects do to please the monarch. And thus they treat every hero of the moment whom they strive to honor. Who them they strive to honor. Simonides is defining the characteristic desires of a, of a tyrant in that sentence there. Simonides is saying that tyrants just rush headlong into trouble because they want that thrill from having that from having the widespread approval of so many people. They want that thrill. They want that approbation. That they desire it. They desire it. Andrew Cuomo exhibits tyrannical mind. The fact that you would say to a member of the press that I don't want to hear from you when he's asking a perfectly legitimate question that is posed respectively and phrased respectfully, and then to another member of the press who belongs to an outlet that is pretty much sympathetic to you, doing the same exact thing, saying, I don't care what you think. Because guess what? It's not about truth with Andrew Cuomo. It's about his impulses, his excesses, and I'm not saying that if he just balanced everything out, it would be okay. Although a lot of people in ancient Greece would believe that. But I think there's something deeper here than just balance, right? If you have two bad options on both sides of the pole, why would you want to balance those bad options? I don't want to do that. I want to get to a good option. I want to stay there. The problem is Andrew Cuomo has not mastered himself. He's not mastered his passion. He's not mastered his bravado. He's not mastered that stuff. He's laboring in the world thing that he's at the center of it. He is laboring in the world with so many falsehoods in his mind, animating his actions, and therefore causing a lot of trouble for the individual rights of New Yorkers. Andrew Cuomo is doing something that is incredibly, incredibly disgraceful. It's disgraceful in it that it disputes the tenets that animate his position. State governments exist to protect rights, not the other way around. The government should be there to protect us, not to rule us. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in the second segment talking about the Asian-American crisis right now. 
and a few other things. Again, if you like and support, if you like this podcast, please support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash official C Watson. Subscribe to us on YouTube and all platforms. I will see you guys in a bit. Thank you so much. Welcome back, my friends. Defense Politics, Mr. Watson. So as I mentioned before, look, the government exists to protect your rights, and that's about it. State governments included. You know, there is this fetishization amongst the right, amongst some on the right, that say if it le- if it's left to state governments, it must somehow be more benevolent, right? Leave it to the states. But as Ayn Rand mentioned, this is nothing more than wanting to, to have bigger, smaller governments. In fact, Ayn Rand criticized George Wallace for this particular fascination. Because George Wallace is all about leaving it to the states, leaving segregation to the states. And Iran said, well, look, George Wallace doesn't just want, doesn't want smaller government. He wants bigger, smaller governments. You know, if you're going to want small government, you have to want small government on every single scale. Or else does not, it's not small government anymore. It's something different. It's the anointing of local polities to something bigger while bringing down the main polity. And if we understand state of nature theory, if we understand how these things work, no matter how much you bring down the centralized polity, there will always there will manifest a bigger polity. There will manifest a bigger political community in the future. No matter how much you want to deny that, that's that's how this works. In my personal opinion, now I could probably do an entire episode just about that. I probably will, but that's how this works. So this is not necessarily about you know um, simply being left to our, our own devices. This is about understanding what happens when government, which is force, intersects my ability to do things in my life. New York State is a very good example of that. All those facts that I mentioned about Cuomo, they're not incidental. They're not, <laughs> they're not just political talking points. These are things that actually happen that connect to a broader, deeper, insidious mentality which has ensnared the man. So I will be in prayer for him, best I can be in prayer for anyone, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But um, so there was a on on to a different topic. There was a a shooting last night in Atlanta, in which the numbers I'm looking at right now say that eight people were killed at three Atlanta area met massage parlors. All of them Asian women. This has, of course, caused a great deal of consternation. A great deal of consternation amongst the amongst many Asian Americans in, in, in the country. And so the, the suspect has been charged. I will not say his name. I look on Pence Politics, we do not say the name of these people. Because ultimately, first of all, it's not about these people. It's, it's about the ideas, first of all. You know, I, I talk about Andrew Cuomo because he is unfortunately embodying the height of tyranny in the country right now. Even Biden's doing better than him, in all honesty. <laughs> and I say that, I don't say that lightly. But it's not about these people. But secondly, I don't want to give any more juice or power or infamy to the person who went into these three places and mercilessly gunned down innocent people. That's not going to happen on my watch. But we do know that, again, there were eight people killed, and the police mentioned that this man has a sex addiction. 
And apparently, this is this is one of the motives that they're assigning to him. The captain said this. Captain Jay Baker said this. He apparently has an issue, what he considers a sex addiction, and sees these locations as a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. So, if we are to accept this hypothesis, which again, I'm not sure, hey, if, 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 if that is the reason, if that is the reason why he did this, then, then, okay, let's deal with that. I'm not so sure that is the reason. I have no reason to believe otherwise. But if we are to accept this hypothesis, then maybe the conversation should again be about correcting addiction, correcting mental health, rather than assuming that there's a specter, a boogeyman that exists that is constantly assailing Asian Americans. Here's the problem I have with this mentality that Asian Americans are somehow under assault. And I do think that Asian Americans are under assault, but not by, not by and large, by people who want to kill them, but by and large, by people who want to undermine the extraordinary overachievement of many Asian American students by having diversity quotas, which promote the lowest of the rung up to the top of the ladder. That's why I think Asian Americans are under assault that way. I'm not so sure there is there are killing sprees, even though there have been 3,000 Asian folks killed in America over the past year. I'm not so sure that statistic. Um, necessitates that there are killing sprees that are wide and popular, universal to being Asian in America. Is it not possible that this individual is simply mentally troubled and he generally viewed those places as vectors for his vice and he wanted to eliminate that? That's not a justification. Of course, this individual is obviously very sick. He needs to go to jail for a very long time. He's very, very sick. Very sick. But we have no evidence so far that this is a hate crime against Asian Americans. You know, hate crimes are so unquantifiable in the first place. They're so unquantifiable. So unquantifiable. And instead of trying to assume a value to someone based on actions for which the context are not known, let's look at their actions, deduce from that when we get more evidence that might have animated their actions. That is my primary contention with all of this stuff. Now, am I going to say there has not been a rise amongst some individuals of Asian American animus since the onset of the coronavirus? Of course there has been. Yes. I mean, it seems evident to me. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every action committed against an Asian person is therefore a hate crime. See, that, that, that's a flaw in this methodology. So it, it, it assumes, so it's a flawed syllogism. It assumes, the conclusion is assumed by the premise. It's circular. It's circular. So Asian Americans, the premise is that Asian Americans are supposedly targets of hate crimes in America. The, 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 the evidence is well, Asian Americans have been shot. X amount of Asian Americans have been shot. The conclusion is, therefore, Asian Americans are targets of hate crime in America. But that that, that circular doesn't, and, and the the premise doesn't necessarily prove the conclusion at all either. <laughs> so this is not to downgrade what happened last night. Of course not. What happened last night was despicable. It was wrong. It was abysmal. But it is to talk about how we, as a culture, 
are phrasing these things. We are implementing our desires. We're implementing our understanding of the world upon an objective fact of reality rather than letting the objective fact of reality speak for itself. This is the problem. We tend to filter the world too much through our perceptions. Well, you may say, well, Christian, our perceptions are all we have. We have our perceptions and we have reason. Reason is what distinguishes us from the beast. As Aristotle said, reason is what allows us to understand things at a fundamental, deeper level. Because animals have perception too. All kind of animals have perception. But at a fundamental, deeper level, reason is what distinguishes us in our humanity. But we're not using reason. We're using preconceived notions. We're using preconceived notions, my friends. And I've written about the idea of hate crimes as well. Again, it's an unquantifiable subjective musing about an objective action. And therefore, it doesn't fit. It cannot, it's impotent in terms of the kind of useful knowledge it can produce. It can produce an ideological case, certainly. Oh, yes. And maybe that is useful to a certain kind of people. But in terms of actually understanding the situation, hate crimes and that designation are absolutely useless. It tells me nothing more than a thought that we have thought to assign to someone else. The action goes without any more investigation. It's a kind of intellectual laziness almost. If you assume, let, let, let's say, so if you assume this is a hate crime against Asian Americans, and you treat every other killing that an Asian American unfortunately experiences as a hate crime against Asian Americans, you understand what, what the conclusion is, right? The conclusion is, well, we can simply treat this all in the same, the same way, and we can try to have a one-size-fits-all solution to this hate crime stuff. Now, what about, now, what happens when We've established that perhaps this was not a hate crime against Native American Asian Americans. Maybe it was simply a egregious crime, not motivated by any kind of sophisticated animus or thought that was committed by a lunatic. The solutions become impotent. So we are kind of engaging in a self-defeating activity by assuming an intention, assuming an action, without actually going ahead and verifying the um, context around the action. The police are doing this right now, and so far it looks like a sex addiction. Joe Biden has done something very smart. I told you that if Joe Biden is something smart, I would praise him. He has recently said, "We will. I will hold off on making a proclamation or a declaration until we have all the evidence. This is something that so many administrations, including Barack Obama's administration, did not do over the past, the past decade. Barack Obama, when Trayvon Martin happened, immediately said, oh, yes. If I had a son, he looked like Trayvon. That's what he immediately said. That's what he immediately said. Barack Obama. So I'm happy Joe Biden is diverting from that sort of epistemologically nauseous position. But we have to ask ourselves, again, how are we seeing these issues? How are we doing these these issues? That's my question. And I think that a lot of people are seeing them through an unfortunate lens. Marianne Williamson, who has come on this show before, she has said on her Twitter page that Asian American families are wrapping their kids in blankets and trying to make sure that they're all right. My friends, the specter of fear is more concerning than anything else a hate monger could do. The specter of fear is the biggest thing that hate mongers have on us. Anyway, that's just one thing I want to touch on. So the Rescue America Act, 
the Rescue America Act, so this is the stimulus check stuff. And there are stimulus checks that are flowing into so many bank accounts, and people are so relieved. And and ultimately, my friends, I find this as a, as a Trojan horse for a kind of evil, as I mentioned before. And that kind of evil is government dependency. So Political had an article out the other day. It says, beyond COVID relief, Biden invokes LBJ as Democrats aim to expand the welfare state. This is a political. This is a left-leaning publication. <laughs> Halfway through the article, it says, Democratic leaders are banking on some of the age provisions being so popular that letting them expire would be a political nightmare, painful enough for Americans that even Republicans couldn't stand in the way. Isn't it interesting that Joe Biden is invoking LBJ and the Democrats are invoking LBJ in an attempt to act like LBJ? When LBJ created one of the most ineffective and immoral welfare statuses, state systems in the history of this country. It was immoral in that it tried to deprive so many African Americans of their agency and the pursuit of their own destiny and the pursuit of their own happiness by getting them hooked on more systems. And those systems being bound by rules, which adhere to a certain egalitarian understanding of how the African American is supposed to live. And it was ineffective because poverty has been a stable percentage over the past few decades. Very stable. There is very scant evidence these programs have actually worked. But isn't it interesting that Democratic leaders, as this this political article says, are hoping that these new provisions become so popular that removing them will be painful? That sounds a lot like Social Security to me. If a politician talked about abolishing Social Security or moving Social Security towards a privatized mode of medium, no would happen, right? They would, that would be the end of their career. Even many people who are conservative, who are limited government, who are libertarian, are still in full support of Social Security. See, here's the problem. When we connect our principles, as I mentioned earlier, to transitory states, we stand for nothing and we fall for everything. When you have no strong principles and you connect them solely to transitory states and your philosophy becomes whatever happens at the spur of the moment, this sort of egregious, devilish consequentialism, you stand for nothing and you fall for everything. Because the foundation under your feet shifts in whatever direction something becomes beneficial to you. Self-interest is great, but the self is not the only constituent fact of reality. There's the self, and there's the world. And the entire thing about individualism is reconciling the self with the world and seeing how both uh, correlate and seeing how that correlation can exist in a social context. That's the, that's the big thing we're trying to reconcile here. You don't reconcile the self and the world by simply exi- pretending the self is all that exists. Because the self is a, bl- a little bit more immediately impacted by a certain policy proposition than something else is. So it's very easy to be for small government. When the consequences of small government 
do not affect you adversely. But it's very hard to be for small government. When small government means taking up personal responsibility. When small government means not relying on other people to parasitically pay for your retirement. I'm not trying to be harsh here. I'm just simply trying to be honest with you. And the Democrats are literally importing that old world, new deal, great society mindset from the 30s and 60s to enshrine more sacred cows into our legislative existence. And it is a shame. It is scary. It diverges from the principles of the American experiment, which pride our ability to be self-reliant. It diverges from the truth, from the agency of Americans, and tries to get them hooked again on a system that is not promoting them to to cultivate skill and to be self-sufficient. Which means that if the system were to ever falter, those Americans, those retired Americans, those dependent Americans would suffer immensely. We are just in a system that continually normalizes theft. It continually normalizes the fact that you can take from me to pay someone else without any, without any compensation. Without any, we, are, we, are, we are continually normalizing a system that has a kind of false altruism. We are continually normalizing a system. It's a system, my friends. And it is continually being normalized. It's not just. You know, I I miss the days when we would consider the implications, the moral and principal implications of this kind of stuff. We don't anymore. Or if we do, it's not, we don't do it in any meaningful way. So, what Democrats are doing right now is just terrible, but it's, it's predictable. They did it in the past. They did it in the past. Did they not? They did not. It happened in the past. FDR, LBJ. It happened in the past. So I, I just find it immensely unfortunate. Immensely unfortunate. This is what we've come to. And the evil that I mentioned wasn't just all of this. It was primarily the evil of government dependency. And the fact is, according to what these Democrats are saying, that we can deduce that the Rescue America Act was a Trojan horse for government dependency. Okay, we'll give you this money, and we're going to enshrine these provisions into law to make them harder to beat so that people will be hooked onto this for a very long time. That's evil, my friends. That's ultimately evil, and that it deprives us or tries to deprive us of our agency and our, our self-determination. Two things that are essential to liberty, and liberty is essential as the animating quality of human life. Liberty, in my opinion, is the axiom that animates our ability to act freely in this world. And in that instance, if we are to accept accept that premise, then this is not only anti-liberty, it's it's anti-life as well. It's anti-life. So, let me make a broader point here, guys. When you struggle, don't Run to the government to get help. We have this philosophical conception of the government that the government is this great stabilizing force that exists beyond any of our power or authority, and therefore we assign it to some higher worth. 
even the idea of saying the government is very, it's an abstract thing, right? It's a very abstract thing. It's a very abstract idea, the government. It doesn't necessarily, no one ever talks about the Department of Commerce or the IRS when they mention the government. They talk about those things in isolation, but the government itself subsumes all of those things. It's a very interesting abstraction. But it's one that, in the mind of some Americans, is necessary for survival, is necessary in times of need. But a half-hearted mentality that says, I will be an individualist, I will be all on my own, or I will do most of the things by myself with my family, my community, until things get hard enough that I need help, that's the mentality behind the safety net. But it is a morally inconsistent mentality. Because if the ideas of self-reliance and self-determination emerge from, a, from, an, from an understanding of the individual's worth and value and the individual's ability to do things in this world, and you immediately undermine that, that worth and that value when you, you really think you can't do something, and you go towards a system that epitomizes force, what you're doing is being morally inconsistent and not recognizing that sometimes the truth causes you to undergo a process of struggle. Sometimes the truth causes you to be uncomfortable. Sometimes you will suffer for doing things the right way. But many times that suffering is not necessarily a negative thing in the long run, even if it feels bad. See, we humans want pleasure, want to feel good. But as social Nietzsche would mention, happiness and pleasure, that's not life. Life is struggling. Life is pain. Peter's like to say that life is suffering. In a weird kind of way, it probably is. I don't know. I, will, I would prefer saying that life contains suffering <laughs> rather than saying that life as a whole is suffering. So it's important for us to understand exactly what kind of mentality we're endorsing here. That we are ultimately being morally inconsistent with the American ethos. And then, hey, if you reject the American ethos, that's fine. This is not for you. I have some other th- I have some other things to deal with with you. If you reject the American ethos, I have some other things to deal with with you. I'll, we'll talk about that later. But it's so much deeper, my friends. So much deeper. It speaks from the lowest point of self-estimation when you sacrifice your ability to do something in this world to government assent. It speaks to the lowest point of your self-estimation of yourself. It reflects a poverty of values. Does this mean if you go if you go get help for something that you're, you know, not you're not being a full individual? No, of course not. Family exists for a reason. Friends exist for a reason. We're not superhuman. But at the same time, you have more control. You have more agency over your friendships and your family relations than you would over a system, a bureaucratized system that is faceless, nameless, which assigns to you a number or a code and then gives you money like your cattle. Your agency is not threatened with a friend or a family. Not entirely, at least, unless you walk to a situation that is not advantageous to you. In that instance, you have the ability to leave most of the time, unless you're being held by force. And in that instance, government comes in to help you, to get rid of the force. So there's something wrong with seeking help. There's something wrong with undervaluating yourself and sacrificing your ability 
to do things to an, a structure, a cold, callous structure populated by people who don't really care as much about your life as you do, but care more about making you making it seem as if they care about you so they can maintain their hold on political power for whatever purposes they may have. So my friends, let me leave you with this. Don't run to the government for help. Run to your, fam- your friends, your family, sure. But ultimately, trust yourself. Trust who you are. Have enough self-esteem to trust your skills and your abilities. I promise you, even if it doesn't feel like it, it will pay off eventually. Think on it. All right, my friends, as always, I love you so much. If you want to follow me, follow me on Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram, all at Official C. Watson, patreon.com slash Official C. Watson, PayPal, Official C. Watson at gmail.com. My YouTube channel is Christian Watson. Follow me, subscribe, like, share this podcast episode on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. As always, my friends, I love you, and please, we'll be back on Friday, and please stay pensive. Bye-bye.